0: I teach different courses. One of the things I teach is leadership. I don't know. Maybe I should plug. Should I plug my podcast right now? Aaron Burgess and I, are starting a podcast called The Leadership Suplex, wrestling with real influence. It's where uh, professional wrestling in, in, intercepts uh, leadership. Which does it really? Maybe not. But we're gonna make it work. But anyways, I teach uh, leadership um, courses. And what's interesting is that leadership theory is ever developing, and that's what's really fascinating. Is that, um, you know, when I was taught leadership stuff within graduate school, you know, it's like, oh, this is it. You know, it's like John Maxwell. I don't know if, does anybody know who John Maxwell is? He's like a popular writer on this. It was funny, I was at this business thing on Friday, and they're listing off all these books. And again, I was like thinking to myself, five bucks that they mentioned Jim Collins, good to great. And it was the first one out of the shoot, And I'm just like, boom, nailed it. Because there's like base leadership theory, but it's ever developing. Um, and there's one thing, and again, I didn't invent this, uh, any of what I'm going to show you. But there's also the concept now of, and this is something I've been hitting on recently with people, is that the flattening of the earth, specifically with digital media, is changing the silos of power and contribution into society. So it used to be, it was all top-down, and if you were at the bottom, you were voiceless, really. You just had to follow along. Well, now this is becoming inverse, and we're actually seeing the application of this to leadership theory. So what I do in one of my uh, lectures and classes, I show them this video of a... um, It's like a Coachella-type concert. It's somewhere out in, like, Washington State or California. And I show them this bizarre video, and you're going to have to worry. There's this lone... Guy out here, and we don't know if he's either inebriated or high. So, I'm apology for the shaky cell phone video, but at least it is landscape, so we have that going for us. But basically, I have another video, another angle that this guy was out here doing this for like 15 minutes. So it's not like it just happened. But then all of a sudden, this other guy comes up and affirms it, and then he's like, "No, let's dance like this." And that guy's like, "Okay," but then you know they're kind of working on their movements you know, and he's pointing up to his buds and he's like, yeah, look at me go. And it was that probably nod that allowed, you know, and that move was just epic. But it allowed his buddy to be like, and I don't even know what was happening there. But his other buddy's just like, I'm going to come down and make this happen too. And uh, you'll see him entering from the left side of the screen any moment now. Uh, By the way, there's music to this, but I didn't want to set it up. So now this guy's He is into it, and plus he has this, like, comical physique, which I think really helps. And anytime you can, you know, shake your tail feather, I think it helps. So, you you know, now these guys are doing it, and that's a nice little back roll, too. But what you're going to see now is that, okay, now the whole group of dudes are like, let's get in on this. Has anybody seen this before? Molly has? They probably teach it at Xavier. See? Bam. Killed Villanova this week. So anyway... Yes, parable. Yes, the first follower, and that's the lesson that is taught here. Because if you're going to see now, everybody's like, "I went in on this," and this whole leadership principle of the first follower is that they're saying, "Look, like the growth of this was impo- was impossible until the guy on the scene first, with the crazy guy, actually affirmed it." So, in like popular leadership theory, they're like, "Who's the leader?" And you would be like that first guy out there that's willing to stand up and to you know just be bold and do something crazy but usually it takes somebody to affirm that as a principle and that person is actually the true leader so it's funny now as you see this going is that what started with this now everybody wants in on it this is also supposed to be a theory of movement creation right is that that guy was out there for 15 20 minutes doing this and nobody wanted in on it but to the extent now is like that guy is (laughs) he's gotta be high um and, and then I love the guy with no shirt who's cell phoning this as it comes across to it. But now you're looking at what, you know, I don't know how much time it says. maybe like two minutes, three minutes. Went from some crazy dude on the hillside now to well over 100, maybe 200 people and more people trying to get in on this later. And that, so it's this concept now that as we're looking at leadership and how it works out, it spreads in ways that you wouldn't think apply to traditional things so this is um as we're getting into our text today and i I wonder if this is the first time in any church that we have introduced a biblical theme with like people wearing their underwear high at a coachella concert or something so we might be breaking ground there But as we get into the scriptures in Luke chapter 17 here today, what Jesus is talking about, you know, and I'm not trying to implant American principles into the scriptures here, but I would offer that specifically what he is discussing is our roles within the kingdom of forgiveness, specifically for those of us who are either leaders or followers. And I don't know if I, you know, we're a smaller crowd. I think we're in a good place with each other? Maybe a way I can just ask that, is think really quickly. Are you a leader or a follower? How do you self-identify yourself in the world in which you live? Do you consider yourself as somebody who leads? Or do you consider yourself someone who follows? Have it in our minds? How many of us are leaders? All right, don't, don't, no, just, just do it. Just commit. Like, let's put this up. Like, if you're doing this, then you're probably not. No. <laughs> So there's about half of us. How many of us followers? How many of you view yourself as followers? Some of you? How many of you are just like, I hate this church already? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Wow. There was a lot of that. Bam. Gut punch, Steve. Okay. This is going to be interesting because Jesus outlined, outlines these roles and gives advice to him. And I'm You know, I'm going to probably pull this together and say it's always for us who are doing this. It's a little bit of each. So let's get there. Joe's going to read for us today. Now, Joe, you're a seasoned professional. I'm going to throw this at you at the beginning because this is tough. Because the way that this text is sent, it kind of vacillates back and forth. Luke plays in and out. So I want to focus first here. So you're going to read verse 1 and 2, and then you're going to skip down to verse 7 through 10.
1: All right. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a uh, millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin.
0: Okay, now go down to verse 7.
1: Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would Would he not rather say, prepare my supper... Get get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty.
0: Thank you. So I'm going to offer that these verses right here are directed toward the leaders. And we've talked about this the past few weeks, that the leaders within this uh, society that Jesus is Addressing here are the religious leaders. And recognize that with their religious leadership also comes power because they are the ones who hold the resources. Jesus is mad at this group because they are hoarding the resources. They are hoarding the knowledge. And they're making life difficult for other people. And something that Jesus says here in the verses 1 and 2 that is interesting is something that we know. Is that Jesus admits that in life there will be impediments. There will be things in your way. And it's something that I think that, you know, is, is sometimes taught poorly in churches, specifically those that have certain theologies that are trying to say, if you just follow Jesus, your life will just, boom, it'll all be on a fast track. You know, everything will be ideal. It's going to be like the Red Sea parting and you walk through on dry ground. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what life is like. Life is actually difficult and there will be stumbling blocks. Um, I noticed this this past week, and I don't know if any of you, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of like, southern southerners here but um this past week on i-75 toward the kentucky indiana or kentucky tennessee border there was a massive landslide and this is just past jellicoe uh and you know like the Jellico exit so if you guys have ever gone south on 75 you know exactly where this is and it's on one of these hills and you can see is that you know the, the this is i believe the um uh what do i want to say the Southbound lane is this one on the right. And it the whole thing just collapsed. So the reason that I was interested is because I've got to go to Tennessee at the beginning of April. And they're saying that the detour, the short detour of this, is like a 30-mile detour out of the way. So this is your public service announcement if you have to go south. Huh? Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Because if you know where the mountains are back there, you're going to probably, you know, behind a semi going 20 miles an hour at standpoint. So this is horrible and then i'm you know like what's funny is that i don't know if any of you like feel that angst that i have like you're like i'm not even going there but that kind of pisses me off right like expressways are supposed to exist for express to get me there and when it fails it's failed me and i get angry and what jesus is trying to say here is like look you're always going to have something that crosses it i should have included the other picture uh, that i was looking at chose this one was a big boulder like there's a place in ohio like a big boulder just fell on half of a, of a highway and basically it took them a couple of weeks just to bust it out to get it back open and fix the road it's insane but the reason that this bothers us is because we're used to things going well and that we have this preconceived notion about life right that it's supposed to just go smoothly when something bad happens then i'm trying to theologically explain it what jesus is saying don't even try it's going to happen now here is this aspect of the story that jesus gets to he says look Impediments are going to happen. And if you are the one who is making impediments, then it sucks to be you. Because you will be judged by making impediments, specifically if you're a leader, for those that follow you. And Jesus here is speaking specifically to the Pharisees. Going even an extent further, Jesus like gets some judgment going on him. right? He's like, it would be better for those people to have a millstone hung around their neck and be thrown into the sea. And, you know, sometimes we take for granted that we understand things that are in the scriptures, what a millstone is, but recognize that it's a farming piece of equipment that was used to smash grain. And there are two different ways that it could happen, because sometimes they could, as they were flattening stuff out, actually put it in the millstone track, or other times when you see the You know, the stick in the middle here, it was supposed to be ground up into here. But either way, donkey for scale, these are massive, massive things. Smaller ones do exist, but even at that point, they're they're probably just a foot and a half or so wide and made of pure rock, which means you wouldn't even be able to stand holding one around your neck, let alone swim with one around your neck. So what Jesus is saying is, is that if you are the one who is... Causing other people to stumble, it's better for you to be chucked into the sea, which is not usually how we associate Jesus's, you know, what I want to say, Jesus's life and his mission about, but recognizes that he needed to confront them. Continuing in verse 7, we have this like mini little parable. Where Jesus is like, look, say you have a servant. And again, this resonates with what we've, se- we've said before. So he's talking to the religious leaders around here because they're the only ones that could even imagine the possibility of employing a servant. And when I say employ, understand that this was not like American slavery with, uh, you know, in the 19th century. This was more like an indentured servitude that you would sell yourself into as a servant position and you would have a definitive time of release. And that was a way to usually pay off debts or to make money at some point but what he's saying is that say you have a servant and you know they've been out working in the field and you're going to have dinner and it's like hey come down let's sit down let's just eat this thing out you're just like no now it's your next job go get me my food right that's your position your role and he's saying here jesus is saying no servant would have the gall just to sit down and be like what's what's for dinner because it's their job to help out. You know, you you are getting paid for this. So again, that we, to make the distinction between American slavery. Like, this is a part of your job, what you do. If you were a servant as a, as, at a restaurant or have done that. You know, the the weirdest restaurant, what I want to say. Like, little thing is that you always have that server who's like, I'm going to be personal. And they sit down with me. And as much as, like, I'm like, okay, I, I guess I like that, but just get out of that seat. And, you know, I don't even own the seat. But I'm like, Let, let's just keep our, our our roles different. And I'm, seriously, I'm not a classist elite like that, but there is that point, right? Because I saw some of you, like, saying, like, you guys get what I'm saying right here. Do you, with that illustration? Okay. Not being a jerk? It's fine, because Jesus is being a j- bigger jerk, because what he's saying is, like, no, you get up and serve. Now, this is what Jesus does, is he flips the script, right? And he said, and he then says, you wouldn't accept this out of your servants, but you, friends are the worthless servant who's doing that. So the first thing he does is he makes it all awkward for them because he's like, no, you're the servant, and you're serving the Lord God. And you're basically saying, hey God, I have all rights and privileges to come and sit at your table. And God's like, no, especially not because of the way you're acting. All this brings to light this this, um, aspect of God's character that we don't like to grapple with is his justice. Is who God is, and he demands out of all of humanity, justice be served. And his issue with these religious leaders is that they weren't making it happen, and therefore they would be called into this. Big thing when I ever talk about leadership in church and how that works out, because yesterday in Bible study, we had just a wonderful conversation on cults, because that's what happens when dudes get together. We end up talking about cults. And there's this aspect whenever we talk about church leadership is there, you know, the big fear out of everybody societally is what happens when those leaders abuse their power? Like, who holds them accountable? And as much as to our dismay, ultimately the answer is God. And what Jesus is saying here is a lesson that's true. Is that if you desire to be a leader, whether in this church, whether in the, the Christian realm, anywhere, you are going to be held accountable for your leadership. Because you have other people coming behind you. And if you lead them astray, then that's on you. James three one is a verse that I keep in my pocket all the time. Because in any of my leadership aspects or when I'm working with people, all things have to be judged by this parameter. Which is that, you know, okay, as much as we are power hungry, you know, why do we want leadership? We want power. What does power do? It allows us to have security for ourselves, for our family, for our friends. If you're going to chase this, Got to be careful. Because if you're mishandling your leadership power, then God's going to bring it back to you. You'll be judged more strictly than that. So that's the admonition. So it's anything, whether in church, in your in your role in life, okay, if you're like, I'm a leader, I'm gonna come through this. Make sure that you are handling the authority that has been given to you well. Otherwise, it comes on back. Joe, let's keep reading. Verses three through six. So we're jumping back a little to try to see. Now, to those followers, what Jesus has to say.
1: So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this uh, mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it will obey you.
0: Okay, so to followers, this is actually something that's interesting is that, and understand the relationship at work right here. So when they're saying rebuke, this is actually something where it's like, look, if you're a follower and a leader is putting impediments in your path, they're making difficult for you to live, then your job is to rebuke them. During Jesus' time, this was just a ridiculous notion. Like it just wouldn't have happened, right? And what's interesting though is even though that was 2,000 years ago, We still have the same aspects today because power structures and systems are very leery of feedback. And Maybe you've experienced this personally. Maybe you've been like a lower level employee and you're working at the ground level and you're like, we are so inefficient in the way that we are doing this. All we have to do is fix it. Like it wouldn't even take much. So you go to your manager or your supervisor and you're like, hey, all we have to do is this. And they're like, take out the trash. Why? Because systems of power don't want to hear that, because there's this aspect that that leaders believe, is that if I have everything, you know, if I'm the one in charge, I have to have it control of everything. And I'm obviously right. And this type of thing happens in small issues, like, you know, maybe in restaurant management service, and in, in large issues, like even governmental issues. So, you know, the last month it's been this uh, story, and I, I'm just always... You know, because I grew up in the midst of it, is the Challenger disaster. And you know, some of you it was '86. I don't know if you were born then or if you have any recollection of it. But I remember because I was my daughter's age and sitting in school when we were told like a horrible thing has happened. We weren't the class actually watching it. We were at lunch, and I remember going back, and that's all we did the rest of the afternoon is watch this. Well, the, the crazy thing about it is, as that news came out, this man right here is Bob Ebling. Ebling. And there were three other engineers that worked with him and somebody months before who tried to tell the government this is not going to work. And specifically, the night before, Bob and his group of people said, look, you want to launch in these temperatures tomorrow. The O-ring will not hold up to this because of the cold. And because of the cold, it will burst and the, the space shuttle will blow up. And he told them that and they said, it's none of your business. And he went home and told his wife that night, Tomorrow, the space shuttle's going to blow up. And can you imagine just him sitting there, watching that happen, just being like, there it is. It was interesting. you got to just check it out. It's fascinating. He was on NPR during the, um, during, you know, the, the anniversary of this uh, back in the end of January. And he even just said, he goes like, I don't know why they picked a loser to do this. Like, if only they could have found somebody who had the right voice, it could have changed this whole thing. And like, <laughs> he was inundated. Like he's in his 90s now, can't even see well enough to read, inundated with people who are just saying thank you for being brave enough to step up and say the right thing. This is what Jesus is saying. You know what, if you're being done wrong like that, your obligation is to step up and rebuke. And some of her are like, yes, rage against the machines of power, right? Because that is what needs to happen. But here's the rub. He doesn't just end there because he doesn't even focus on the rebuke aspect of making things right. He says, and then your job is to forgive those people for being asses, right? The kid left, I could say that. He says, forgive them for being that way. And here's what Jesus it goes all Jesus on this thing, right? Because he's like, don't just forgive them, forgive them seven times. And Jesus here isn't trying to be like, okay, I've got like, you know, like an app on my iPhone that I just hit and it adds it up so I can tally who has done what to me and how often have I forgiven. You know, seven, we know biblically a number of perfection. And what Jesus is saying is that forgive them ad nauseum. Again, this runs counter to how we perceive things as Americans, right? We're like, I'm all about the rebuke. And maybe I'm at the forgiveness part, but way down the road. The modern poet, poet Jay Cole, expresses it as such. Anyone? J. Cole? Me? Just me? That's fine. Um, but he's, you know, he basically, the take on the fool me one time, shame on you, fool me twice, can't put the blame on you, fool me three times, bleep the peace signs, load the chopper, let it rain on you. You know, and what he's saying is like, okay, you know, I I have this forgiveness, but eventually just boom, like let's blow stuff up, Right? And that need for justice, I think, resonates within us. And the issue with this, those friends, is that what Jesus is pulling down here, for those who have no power, is this idea that you have to juxtapose the justice of God with his other attribute, which is the grace of God. Now, I talk about this as being an attribute of God. It's paradoxical, right? Like, you and I don't have the ability to function in and out in the way that God does. So either I'm really fixated on justice or I'm all about grace. And usually that's self-serving. True? So when it comes down to issues of justice, that's for them. It's what they have done who have wronged me. When I'm thinking about grace, that's for me. It's what I deserve because I'm the, I'm the one who's been wrong on all aspects of my life. And what we have to understand is that we vacillate, vacillate back and forth between those two categories. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that, look, you know, you can understand that you know, when you're being done with the wrong, call out issues of justice. But at the same time, ultimate justice belongs to God. So, you know, the rock would say, my wrestling coming through, is know your role and shut your mouth. And that's what you need to do. You speak, you confront, and then you forgive. And again, there's not, you know, you're like, well, what's the parameters around it? There are none, which means is that we need to do it gracefully and massively. And I love the way that Luke does it right here. Because then after this, it's like Luke is doing it and his disciples are there. And they're just like, Jesus, we need more faith. You know, you're like, is that random? No, they're asking for that because they're like, this is hard, right? Like, how many of you have issues right now when you're dealing with like, I, I have an issue of justice, right? That needs to be righted. And you're fixated on that point and You're like, I need to make her, or him, or them pay. And what Jesus is saying, like, no, you need to bring in the grace. So his disciples are like, we get that. That's hard. Sometimes it's ha- even hard to have the gumption to confront, let alone to have the power to forgive somebody. else They're like, Jesus, we just need more faith. Give us more faith and we can do this. And Jesus counters them and says, actually, faith is small as a mustard seed, which is basically, you know, like a poppy seed in size. He's like, that can make trees be thrown into the ocean. So Jesus is like, no, you don't need more faith. You need to utilize the faith that you already have. This is some matrix level stuff coming out, right? But recognize that the truth of it is, is that this is possible because of who God is and who he is and what he does. So in any church, I am always leery of putting the following verse up ...on a screen... ...or to cite this... ...because if any writings of Paul... ...have ever been abused... ...and they have been abused... ...this is some of the greatest... ...because people see this as some sort of... ...self-help empowerment... ...where it's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me... ...like, that's my job, I can go, go do this... ...and actually though... ...the reference of the strength here that Jesus pulls from Luke... ...and I'm going to say that this strings together... ...to what Paul is saying right here. Is the point of emphasis is... ...is that yeah, Jesus can strengthen you in just a little to forgive those who have wronged you. And here's the clue about following and leadership. That's true power, right? See, the problem is, is that we view systems, we want to judge those because they're corrupt. That's the inversion of the system. If you have the ability to forgive someone, an entity, a structure, something that I've sinned against you. If you have the ability to practice true forgiveness, then you've turned the tables and actually the power lies with you. It lies with you. It's powerful stuff, right? Okay, moving on. Joe 11 through 17 of Luke. You're like, and this is, by the way, this is why I haven't preached all the way through Luke before. And the one thing I find about Luke is that he just takes this different approach of looking at all these stories. So you're like, okay, I've heard some of this stuff. Matthew puts it differently than Mark. And what Luke does, is he just goes, bam, bam, and he'll just throw this stuff here. So you're like, how did we get there? We'll try to find the roadmap. So. A story we've probably heard before, verses 11 through 17.
1: Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well.
0: When you read the scholars' approach to this, this, Luke weirds them out because they talk about Jesus traveling in that land between the border of Galilee and Samaria. And the reality is, and um, I've got some different things working map-wise here, but we see the Sea of Galilee is at that little body of water at the top in that area with the Galilee. And Samaria is this place which is just in the box. Really, there's no area between the two. They abut each other. So, scholars are just like, Luke has geographical problems. But really, I think what Luke is, is he's not trying to nail that, but he's trying to talk about this space between these two worlds. Because we talked about the Samaritans back in Luke chapter 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. But just to remind ourselves is that they were the intermixing of the lost tribes of Israel that were conquered by the Assyrian armies about eighth century before Jesus was born, and the Jews married with the Assyrians and all these people so they were you know, not pure blood, right? And that is why the Jews hated them to the extent, and I don't know if we can see the arrow as well, is that instead of going through Samaria, they would hop across the Jordan River, go through a treacherous route on the opposite side. We know this through the historian Josephus. And they would cross back over near to Jericho at the you know, top of the, Red, the Dead Sea, which is this little ocean here, just to avoid even being near the Samaritans. So this idea that Jesus was in this land, maybe the land doesn't exist like literally, but there's this metaphor to where he's at this point where either the, you know, the Galileans and the Jews are living in some sort of proximity to the Samaritans. Do you know the one place where those national distinctions meant nothing is if you had leprosy. Is if you had leprosy, then you were all equally worthless. And leprosy was a skin disease, and the reason that they were then were required to, as they walked down, proclaim that they were lepers, or to stay at the fringes, which we see right here in the text, they were supposed to stay from afar, is the idea that they did not know exactly how it was communicable. And most importantly for a good Jew, you did not want to have any sort of skin imperfection because that would prevent you from worship in the temple. And leprosy was full skin infection, which means you had no chance to worship your God in person. So you were actually ostracized, not just physically, but spiritually. That's why, whenever we read the Bible, leprosy is such a main issue. Because leprosy, as a disease, is indicative of separation from God. So they call out, Jesus have mercy on me. Jesus says... I gotcha. And it's like, go to the priest. And they're like, okay. So it's like, and they, they weren't apparently cleansed immediately. It's like, as they were walking away, so I don't know if this is some sort of like the leprosy is falling off them type deal. We don't even know how that persists. But we do know that nine continued on toward the priest and a singular one turned around and came back to Jesus. I would offer to you that that person was a follower, not a leader, because they went by themselves. And you're like, well, maybe he was a leader with no followers. Okay. If he was a leader, he sucked at it because he could not convince people to go back and even thank the one who changed their life. And the revelation that he was actually a Samaritan just shows how different the story is. Because there's this really depressing aspect about this where Jesus is like, where are the other nine? Jesus knows where they are. He's asking a rhetorical question right here. And the only one that came back was one that was off the fringes of this. But this is the whole thing then about this, though, is that really then, in this incident, the follower, again, shows the most capable leadership, right? Is the one that understands is that, you, you know, what is it? You, you, you never bite the hand that feeds you, feed you, nor do you act petulantly against the hand that saves you. And that's what he said. He's like, I'm going to turn, I, I got to thank this man. And what's funny is that the Samaritan from a religious ideological perspective, was farther from Jesus than even the other Jews that were healed here. And friends, that's the inverse of the kingdom. It signifies what's happening today within leadership and following. It's happening what Jesus has done, where the followers become leadership. This is the the whole focus of the gospel, is Jesus turns everything on its head. To this extent, Joe, when you read verses... um, Now, I think it's 20 and 21. I think I had 21, 22. 20 and 21 for us.
1: Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come visibly, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you.
0: I love that verse. Luke is amazing in verse 21. Basically, Jesus is saying, open your eyes. You're like, where is it? Where's it coming? Where should we look? What direction? Jesus is like, look, it's here. Open your eyes and accept the fact that the kingdom of God is now. And that's that understanding, the broad understanding of the kingdom of God. Because so many of us spiritually want to say, oh, the kingdom of God, that's heaven. You know, and that's earth. No, it's, it's where heaven meets earth. It's the combination of that. The kingdom of God is here and it's transformative. Hence, the power of the gospel to affect not only our eternity, but in the here of now. here now. And what we've seen here in chapter 17 is this. What Jesus is saying is that, look, in, in my kingdom, everything's flipped on it. So those who are perceived to be the leaders are really like followers who have no clue. And then those who are following faithful are the ones who are truly leading and in, in, in making a difference for me. And that's, I'm going to tell you, where we in the church struggle to figure that out. Because in our Ability to want to be relevant to the world and to talk about issues of leadership. You know, and again, I've, I've, studied, I've studied all of this, y'all. Like, and as you go into it, as everybody wants to look at leadership, half of it is that they want to take a worldly concept of leadership and stuff it into Jesus' land to make them feel better. I have seen people in, like, leaders in the church treat people with more contempt and maybe even sinfulness than I have ever seen in a corporate setting. And the reason why they do it, even though they th- try to think it's going well, they're like, no, this is what it means to be a strong leader. And this is what Jesus does overall, is he flips the script of it. It's one of the reasons why I'm telling you, as much as, you know, we can look around and, you know, I don't really do this actively, but I can be like, okay, so-and-so's not here, so-and-so's Like, we have a smaller crowd today, What's, how do I attribute that? As much as we want to go into, you know what, it makes no difference to me because this has been the most fulfilling ministry work that I've ever done in my life. Like right now I'm getting all these headhunters asking me for jobs, about jobs. Because um, I'm kind of marketable now, y'all. I've got like some letters after my name, you know. You know, in the church world I'm really marketable. I've got a hot wife and a good looking kid, like where we could Polaroid that thing. Like I can go. And the one non-negotiable I have, two non-negotiables is number one, I'm not leaving Cincinnati. Because I love this place. And then number two, I'm not leaving this. Because I love this place. I love you all because many times we are a church that embodies this. This idea that, you know what, this might be simplistically structured. We might not have all the bells and whistles that other congregations have. But at the very least, what we try to do is live this out. And as I see you guys raising your head, leaders, followers, it's the whole thing. It's like, no, you're, you're both, right? This isn't some patriarchal leadership structure that we come in here. It's that we're on journey together. And there's places where we're going to step up and going to step down. Now here's the thing. As we bring this down to a couple things. Number one, in your daily lives, how is that being perceived? Maybe you're a leader in your job. Are you handling your power well? Or are you putting stumbling blocks in the way of the people that you lead? Because if so, we see that that's bad. And that's bad in the corporate world as much as it's in the religious world. Because you're representing Jesus. And again, some of the worst detriment to the gospel are people who lead publicly and then they are are just horrible people and it's called out, right? And then if you're a follower, how can you follow and continue to do this? If there's things that you have to to confront from your supervisor, boss, thing, okay, do that, but are you as willing to forgive and say, I'm going to cut you some slack because you're human and you're not perfect. I admit, for me, that's tough. For all of us, that's tough. We have to figure out how that applies, right? So that's in our outside life. In this community life, though, I think this is the thing that's really calling us to is that the, the intersection of leadership and following and stuff is really more fluid than we think. Because again, in this church, I see a bunch of people who both do both. And they do sometimes things that are more visibly, you know. It, you know, when we have people leading worship on the stage, and they're, you know, we, we refer to it as leading worship, right? When you have this, this is very visible leadership skills. But what I love about this, and by the way, it was a great worship. Like, I had a great time in worship today. And I think part of that is just because of what these people bring humbly to the table, right? So this is a visible thing, though. We even close the door. You can't see what's happening behind those doors unless the door flails open and we have to slam it again. But those people back there and you who go back there and educate the kids who are making a difference in their lives, that's huge leadership. I mean, I don't know about you. You know, I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a crazy small city church that was quasi-country, and the people who taught me were insane. Like, they they were all over the map. Like, you all are well-adjusted. They had all of these issues they couldn't handle, but you know what? They impacted my life, and they made me who I am today. Just by that little selfless, selflessness, and similarly, that's what you, we're doing right here. But as we continue to try to say, okay, this is important, what we're going to do, we all need to step up in different ways and lead and follow and be involved in that. And that's what I announced a few weeks ago: is like we're going to we're, we're separating things out. And what I want you to do is just to think about what where is God called you to serve here? Because if you're here, and this is the cool thing about Echo, this is why I like how Echo: it's low stress, low involvement, because we all. We all have daily lives. You see, what happens usually in church is that we program it to the extent when you're like, I hate this. Or, when you're in the mega church, it's just like, we just hire more and more people to do this. So what's happening societally, and I could talk another hour about this, is how we're, we're going to screw the church over the next generations because we've made it unachievable for us to, ma- to produce like this. Either you have to mass do it, right, and make it there, or you have to have communities like ours which are difficult to sustain usually because of finances, Like, so that's the rub, that's where we're at. Echo right now, we have money in the bank. Okay, we're good. Okay? So usually, you know, it's like, okay, preach about money? No. What I'm preaching about, though, is that where do you fit in this community? And I know the people in here, all of you are doing things, but what we have to do is also just say, are we doing that organized? Because as much as this has been valuable to you, we need to be valuable to other people. So we even have categorizations. We have, a, you know, we have different teams that we're having here. One's worship team. And you know what? Some of you, maybe you're involved in that and you're singing and stuff like that. But we want to be more personal. Pers- what I want to say? More object, not a uh, good night. Can I start? Strategic would be the word. That we don't just limit it and be like, okay, worship is what happens here from 11 o'clock to noon or noon after on a Sunday, Right? And some of you are like, I can't play a lick. My harmony is non-existent. But maybe you're like, I need to be involved in worship. There's things I do. Dylan can utilize you. We can utilize you, right? There's uh, the, um, the children's and outreach team. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the suck because I love the outreach. I hate kids. Okay, well, we'll deal with you later. Like we will baptize your thoughts. But here's the aspect is because a lot of what in this neighborhood reaching out to people is still is that there's kids and being in the city it's not like when you go, you know it's not like when you go out to the suburbs everything is kid oriented actually here the city is makes it difficult for kids to interact and some of you're like good that's the way i prefer it but recognize is that we believe you know we're not like this huge family church like you know if you're single i don't think you feel ostracized for this i hope not but it's this idea though is that that's a great way of outreach And then we have other aspects of outreach, and maybe you're like, you know what? I want to get out and care about that. Okay, come together, you know, do that. And then the final thing is our discipleship and prayer, and that's a big thing with um, how we just continue to take care of those of us internally. And there's, you know, we do some small groups. We do have a prayer time. There's other aspects by which you can use those resources. So what, you know what? You, we have sheets here, which means you're supposed to sign up. And maybe you're like, oh, I don't want to commit yet today. Okay, but we're going to leave these out the next few weeks. And then the reason we want to do this is for us to be able to continue to grow as a community. As a community. Because I'm, I'm a leader. Okay? Okay? But here's the deal, is that I've recognized in my life one of the great things is I also have to be a good follower. And Echo is tough because, dude, this thing was in my mind, right? We, we started this. And therefore it's like, okay, I have to be the caretaker of it. What if God kills me this week, which he's not gonna kill me, it would happen happenstance. But if I died this week, like, number one, be sad. Number two, have the service in here. And number three, make sure it doesn't suck that's your only thing but if i died this week what happens to echo and i'm not saying that this church has to exist for 100 years when we're all dead you know because everything's has rises and falls. but i'm telling you is that this community has made such an impact in my life and the lives of people who aren't even here that god's calling us to the table to do that so this is a way is that he's calling you to follow but he's calling you to lead in what way do you want to do that make sense And here's the thing. Why do we have to do it? We have to be in the world. My Bonhoeffer quote of the day. And I I take for granted that we know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a a, a German pastor. Amazing testimony. He ended up dying um, right at the end of World War II in an internment camp. But he was a German Protestant pastor. He came to New York City um, during the war. He was teaching there. And he decided when Hitler was in charge of Germany to say, I have to go back to Germany and reach my people. And it cost him his life. But he, looking at this text, this is some of the commentary that he offered within this. Is that the Christian too belongs not in seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And again, when he wrote this 70 years ago, the concept of enemy is what's much more nuanced. I mean, the world was in the middle of conflict. So that would be the only thing about this is enemies, foes. That's not necessarily the vernacular, but man, we have to be in the midst, friends, of this world. We need to be here as a community, but as we leave out, you're taking the church with you. So whether we lead or follow, we have to make it happen. It's what Jesus calls us to do. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this time to worship. Father, we thank you for those uh, those positions to which you've called us. As I've been blessed to look on these people's faces this morning, I could list places where each of them is leading in dynamic ways, and I could list places where they're following, and that just makes me proud to be part of a community like this. But Father, as you continue to grow us personally, help us to uh, utilize those skills right here. Help us help us to understand is that yes, yeah, sometimes we're going to have to be hard and confront but as much as we love justice for other people, God, help us to to distribute grace, massive grace, as if we have an overload of grace towards other people, Father. And we know that it doesn't take a lot of faith for us to do that. So change us this week personally and continue to change our church. Help us to become the body you need us to be in this neighborhood, in this city, and in our world. Thanks for blessing us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.